If you follow the media news, or even the Oscar buzz, odds are you know about Spotlight. That's the name of the Boston Globe's investigative team, and it's also the title of a movie out last fall. The film stars Mark Ruffalo, Rachel McAdams, Michael Keaton, and a slew of other actors, and it tells the story of the Globe's groundbreaking investigation into sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. It's a story that quite literally went on to change the world. Some of the real-life journalists depicted in the movie are IRE members. And in a move that's a little surprising for Hollywood these days, the film feels pretty authentic. No cheap sentimentality. There's no schmaltzy romance. Not a single contrived action shot. Instead, audiences follow the Globe's investigative team of Walter Robinson, Michael Resendez, Sasha Pfeiffer, and Matt Carroll as they chase documents, hassle some lawyers, and eat newsroom cake. With few exceptions, the scenes from Spotlight remain mostly faithful to how the real reporters did things in the early 2000s. How do I know? Well, they told us. The Investigative Reporters and Editors presents Going on the Religion Beat. I'm Adam Ayton, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. After Spotlight came out, we dug into our conference archives and found three cassette tapes, that's right, cassette tapes, of Robinson, Pfeiffer, and Marty Baron, who was the Globe's new editor at the time. When these three spoke at the 2002 and 2003 IRE conferences, they weren't even halfway through the dozens of stories they eventually published on the Catholic Church cover-up, but they still had plenty to say. So this week on the IRE Radio Podcast, we've pulled together the best stuff from each tape and combined it for one bonus episode. Oh, before I forget, make sure you listen to the end of this one because we'll be sharing some important information about a great fellowship opportunity inspired by Spotlight. Back to the tapes. The first voice you'll hear is Walter Robinson, but we'll be cutting in with clips from Barron and later Pfeiffer, who spoke on different panels. Their voices are pretty distinct, and they each offer a different perspective on the reporting, starting from the beginning. Now let's begin this informative session. Um, we first published a two-part series on the 6th of January about Father John Gagan, the priest that Cardinal Law had uh, reassigned to a parish in 1984, even though he knew that Gagan had uh, previously molested children. Church's defense was that the reassignment was made after uh, consultation with the medical and psychiatric experts. Uh, the medical expert later turned out to be, we found, uh, the family doctor of Gagan. Uh, since January 6th, uh, we have published uh, more than 300 articles, news articles in the globe. Uh, uh, too many of them with the dreaded word uh, yesterday in the lead. Uh, some days we've had to publish four or five, six, uh, and I think in some cases more stories uh, for a team that is used to working three or four months on a series, writing a three or four part series, and then uh, and then moving on. We've gone from four to eight reporters involved in the story uh, since that time. Uh, 
There's no end to the story. Uh, it appears that our cardinal is going to spend uh, much of June, that part of it that he's not in Dallas with the other bishops, he's going to spend much of June being deposed. He has two days of deposition scheduled this week. Uh, on Monday, under order of a court, the uh, church has to release to lawyers who will, of course, turn around and immediately give to reporters files on complaints against 11 priests of the Boston Archdiocese. So we've got a major continuing news story. Uh, we have had thousands of calls and emails from around the country uh, since we published, since we began publishing in, uh, in January, uh, which is one of the reasons that we, we know that this is a serious issue in other places. Uh, in, in, uh, in many of those cases, we've, and we don't have the resources to do this, we've had uh, contact from people who uh, tell us that their local newspapers are not interested in uh, tackling this kind of an issue with the, with the church. Uh, how did we stumble onto this story? Uh, it clearly wasn't, uh, there was no information given to us by, by the Archdiocese. Uh, last August, uh, the Globe got a new editor, Marty Barron, who came from Miami Herald. Uh, it started actually on my first day uh, at the Globe, my first news meeting. And uh, when Marty came aboard, he discovered that there was this case, there were these lawsuits against Gagan. Uh, because I had been reading some stories about uh, some piece of evidence that had come out in a case of one priest uh, who was accused of uh, having abused as many as uh, 80 children. Uh, and I was surprised, uh, even though I was fairly busy at the Miami Herald, that I hadn't read, um, I hadn't read uh, about this. Uh, so at the first news meeting, I asked whether uh, how we were following up on some recent stories that had come out. And... Um, there was a bit of hemming and hawing, and um, um, and the, people pointed out, as I knew because of a column that we had uh, that had been written, that uh, most of these documents were under seal. There were these lawsuits against Gagan, but the judge had uh, wrapped everything in a confidentiality order, so none of the discovery uh, was public. And so I raised the question of uh, of our uh, challenging the confidentiality order and whether that had been uh, considered. Uh, and he asked the question, well. We have a right to that, don't we? After that uh, 10.30 news meeting, uh, we called our lawyer. Uh, I'd never spoken to him before. Uh, and then we assigned him to research the law. And um, he came back about a week later, and I asked him what the odds were. And very helpfully, he said 50-50. <laughs> um, so you know, in our business, that's pretty good. And uh, that set our lawyers on course. And uh, we filed a motion in that case uh, to have the documents made public. Uh, which was one track of a two-track two process. And at the same time, even before then, actually, we said we needed to do a more, uh, embark on a more vigorous investigation of uh, what, the, uh, what the church knew about sexual abuse uh, within its ranks, and most importantly, um, what, it, uh, what it did about it when, once it uh, found out about it. Uh, he also asked the Spotlight team in early August to take a look at the Gagan case. And so uh, our spotlight team, uh, which is our primary investigative unit, uh, started on that, uh, on that project. And our first set of stories was in uh, January of uh, last year, uh, January 6th. And that was the result of our investigation, not the result of our obtaining the documents that we had sought in court. Uh, that came two weeks later. After a f just a few days uh, of turning over rocks, knocking on doors, talking to people, uh, we came back 
to him, we found something unexpected. Uh, what we've found out is not about Gagan. What we've found out is that over the last several years, there have been settlements, secret settlements involving sexual abuse by some large but unspecified number of priests. And lawyers uh, who we talked to referred to the payments in these cases as hush money. And these, these were cases that were settled without going near a courthouse. Uh, so we, we embarked on an investigation of this and uh, uh, took, like everybody else, uh, took time off for 9-11 coverage, about two months in our case. Uh, I, I think at the time we thought that there might have been 12 or 15 other priests involved. We didn't know for sure how many. The, the obstacles were, were many. Um, the church uh, uh, is even more impenetrable than most government agencies. Uh, there aren't always uh, or typically uh, public records there. Uh, the people who work for the church, the priests, the nuns, are not generally uh, people who leak to the press. And, um, and also we were working in a, in a city where more than 50% of the population is Catholic. So what did we do? Here are the steps. Um, the first thing we did, uh, which essentially helped us crack the code uh, and, and uh, gave us, was a, was a major confidence builder for the reporting that followed, uh, we took the annual archdiocesan directories, which list every priest and where he, sometimes I almost stop and say where, where he and she, where, where every priest is assigned. And we knew that in Gagan's case and in a couple of other cases that had been public, the priests had been put into categories like sick leave, uh, leave of absence, awaiting assignment. So we went back to the books, uh, we had in, in house the books from 1983 forward. And we've been, we, we, we went through this laborious uh, three or four week process uh, where we went through every book and we identified every priest who at any time had been in any one of these categories. Sick leave, uh, leave of absence, waiting assignment, sometimes lend lease, meaning sent to another diocese. And uh, we created a uh, database. And we found that in the mid-80s, this is in an archdiocese that has uh, 650 active and 250 retired priests. In the mid-80s, there were roughly 20 to 25 priests a year in these various categories. And by the early to mid-90s after the Porter case, the number had grown to 106. And that gave us uh, some comfort level that there were, in fact, had been identified a large number of priests, uh, many of whom, it later turned out, the vast majority of whom's names matched those who had been involved in these secret settlements. Uh, that, that uh, gave us uh, a sense of comfort. We also did, obviously, uh, victim networking. We talked to victims in cases that had been public in the past. Some of them were involved in coalitions, loosely knit, not very well uh, organized uh, coalitions where other victims contributed. And through, uh, through those 
context, we found victims of priests that nobody had known about, including the now famous Father Shanley, uh, the street minister who received extraordinarily favorable coverage in the 1970s for working with street kids, when in fact what he was doing with many of them in the very first counseling session was getting to take their clothes off and have sex with them. And uh, we discovered through this process uh, Father Ronald Paquin, uh, who uh, rolled a car over and killed a kid in 1981. And as it subsequently turned out, uh, it was years after the church knew he had been abusing children. He had a drinking problem. He was drunk when he rolled the car over, and he was bringing these kids back from a camp in New Hampshire where he had abused the kid who died in the crash. Uh, we went through court databases, which uh, looking for any lawsuits which had been filed and found a number of lawsuits that had been filed against the church and against priests uh, by doing database search. And all of those cases which had come to the courthouse had been settled with confidentiality agreements. Uh, but you could get the initial complaint. Uh, through this, we also developed a list of lawyers uh, who had been involved in these cases on both sides, representing the priests, representing the victims. And uh, although you can't plug lawyers' names into the database, we did get somebody at the court who gave us the lawyer information, and we went through every case that every lawyer, uh, in some cases hundreds of cases of lawyers who had done maybe four or five priest cases, but trying to identify those cases. And one thing we discovered when we did that was that uh, we would often get back from the computer there there is nothing available on this docket number. And we discovered through that 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 in cases, some cases that had been settled, the judges had actually impounded all the documents so that there was no record that the lawsuit had ever been been filed. We went to court in two counties on 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 that and we won the suits. Uh, in both counties and have unsealed those cases. We've written about a batch of them, and there was some uh, important stuff in that. Uh, also, in the Gagan case, there were 84 lawsuits. Uh, there were documents uh, buried. Uh, lawyers file motions, even in cases where there's confidentiality orders, and they attach uh, as exhibits documents. And in one, one of the Gagan lawsuits, uh, there was a letter from Bishop Darcy to Cardinal Law, Archbishop Law, in 1984, basically saying assigning John Gagan, who has molested all these kids, to this new parish is a really nutty idea. This is a bishop uh, uh, was farmed out shortly thereafter to, he's now the bishop of the Fort Wayne uh, South Bend Diocese in, in Indiana. Um, we also turned over uh, using uh, Autotrack, um, looking for one priest, and when you click on others at the same address, we found uh, this uh, residence hall where, where uh, the, the archdiocese was hiding pedophile priests, and uh, uh, 10 or 12 of them had been uh, nice enough to list themselves as residents of the place, so we, we located uh, priests uh, that way. Um, by early September, just before 9-11, we had, actually had the names of 30 to 35 priests who had been involved in these uh, in these settlements? Um, on our on our other track, the legal case in November, uh, an Irish Catholic judge 
with 16 years of Catholic education, ruled in our favor that the church had to give up all the documents in the Gagan case, which came as a shock to, uh, to the archdiocese. Um, they appealed the decision, and um, we won the appeal, and the documents were slated for release in January. The cardinal's lawyer, uh, since we were interveners in the case, having filed this motion, wrote our, our attorney a letter in December in which he said, uh, it has been, uh, this isn't quite the prior restraint, which is what the cardinal of, in uh, Los Angeles tried on the LA Times, but it has been brought to my attention that certain reporters of your client, the Boston Globe, have been making inquiry of a number of priests of the Archdiocese of Boston regarding these cases. While I do not know how your office and or the Boston Globe has secured these materials, he was referring to some documents he thought we had uh, illicitly obtained, which in fact were in court file, public court files. Uh, I would point out that the Boston Globe is now a party into this case. As such, both the Globe and you as its counsel are subject to the confidentiality of Judge McHugh. In the event that the Boston Globe in any way further disseminates these materials, either by way of inquiry or publication, I will seek appropriate sanctions against both your client and Bingham Dana, which is our law, law firm. Um, so th that was the threat. Um, we uh, published a two-part series on Gagan in early January because of the documents that were coming. And uh, with this, we published, uh, tough for a newspaper to do, but it was something we started doing in '99 a contact box, which essentially says, you know, we're pretty stupid. We don't know much about what's going on out there. If you have information about this issue that you'd like to share with us, give us a call. But after we ran our stories in early January, we had run uh, two phone numbers. One is a confidential tip line, and one is a line where they could call and get us on the phone. And we were flooded. I mean, we, the phones rang constantly for weeks. And if we didn't check the voicemail for a few hours, it would pick up, and there'd be 30 new messages to take off. And so we found ourselves spending a lot of time talking to people on the phone who had never talked about this to anyone before. I've, I've lost count. We've had thousands of phone calls and emails uh, from around the country. Uh, we've uh, uh, had a number of rough days where uh, many, many victims have called us. And uh, we, in, in the Boston Archdiocese alone, we've interviewed close to maybe over 300 victims by now. And typically these are adult men in tears on the telephone. Some of them hadn't told their wives. And I think we found ourselves in almost a counselor role that we hadn't expect, therapist counselor. And that's sort of dangerous because, you know, you have to know how to deal with that. And, you know, as you said, we're not trained to do that. So I think we had to be very careful and learn that we were dealing with delicate, we were dealing with people who were pretty messed up. And, you know, oftentimes, a lot of these meetings were face-to-face -face because I think, as you said, it's often the best way. I think you have to do whatever you can to make someone trust you, and if that means meeting them in, in person the first time, you do that. And often you'd meet people who are articulate and intelligent and attractive and bright and very, seem very talented, but something happened when they were 12 or 13 years old and they've been totally derailed them and have been very unable to get back on track. And I think that I try to find ways to remind those people that when they first present themselves, they present themselves as articulate and attractive and talented. And, you know, I think they might sort of identify themselves to a certain extent as being a victim because this, this event that happened when they were a teenager has sort of guided their life. Um, and I think that treating victims like people sounds basic, but it, I think it makes a difference. I think as, as much as you can, I think that's important. Um, it's also, when you're talking to so many victims every day, 
you have to remind yourself that even if it's week three and you've talked to your hundredth victim, often this is the first time this person's talked about it, and it can be hard. You know, you can get sort of immune to it to a certain extent, but you know, these are long conversations. These are conversations you don't want to you don't want to start a phone call on deadline because it's going to take a long time, and sometimes you just can't hang up on someone when they need to keep talking. The other issue is that often what we what was most important for us to know, meaning sort of what was the exact abuse, what were the details of the abuse, is when they didn't, didn't really want to talk anymore. I mean, that's often when people would start backing off and they just get vague. But sometimes you need to know. I mean, if, if it was oral sex, then that, that's rape. And that's important for us to know if this priest, if what happened was within the criminal statute of limitations, and we need to know if it was rape. So that was something else is, you know, be, it's hard to know how to approach that because that's going to be the most touchy part of the conversation. But it's also important. You have to be able to do that in sort of a, a graceful, delicate way. Um, after we ran several stories, we got a few calls and emails from therapists who said, I wonder if you guys are aware of what you're stirring up for people. There are a lot of people who have, may not have talked to you, but because these stories have been in the paper, it's causing a lot of emotional turmoil. And I think that initially we hadn't been running therapist sort of crisis counseling numbers, but eventually we, we did begin running a few, so there was some outlet. I think initially we, we were concerned that it would appear to be some kind of advocacy and maybe we needed to be totally neutral. But eventually we began to run, a, I think, a rape crisis number. Although I think that we also found that one number we almost ran wasn't, the phone wasn't being picked up. Wasn't that, that an issue? And we, so if you're going to run a number, make sure someone's there to deal with the barrage of phone calls they could get. Um, one thing I wish I had done better is that, you know, there are some victims that I dealt with from the very beginning who become very close contacts. I'm in touch with them very often. They know a lot. They can provide a lot of information. But then I think back about other people I dealt with, and I wish I had stayed in better touch with them. I wish I had checked in maybe every other week, because I think that, again, re you have to remember that these people are, it's like, it's like a nuclear bomb. They've never told anyone. You walk into their life, you, they tell you their story, and then you walk out again. And I think that it's, as with any source, but particularly with sources in bad shape like these, you need to sort of stay in touch, let them know that you're still there. You didn't just walk into their life, get the story, and walk back out again. Um, we talked about this this morning, that... In a, in a, and their victims are sources, and that's the other issue, is that you, the church essentially wouldn't talk to us. The church has been pretty useless. But the victims are the people who sometimes are sitting down with the sex abuse liaisons with the archdiocese. So they're hearing what the church has to say to victims. Often the only way we could know what the church was telling people was for the victims to tell us. So if you're cultivating a relationship with the victim, you're going to get great information. Same with the lawyers. You know, lawyers, the victims are hearing different things from lawyers than we may have heard from them. So that was just important to maintain those relationships. Um, most victims, um, there was still this sense, I think, initially among victims that if I go public, I'm going to be ostracized. And I think people found the opposite often, that there was an outpouring of support. But I think it's also important to make sure that victims understand that this is going to impact your life if you talk to us. Just not scare them off, but make sure that you feel comfortable that they're aware of that. I, I told you this morning that I had one guy who wanted to go public and hadn't told his wife. And I said, if, if you're going to do this, you need to tell your wife. You can't. She can't find out reading this in the Boston Globe. So I think you, there's a certain responsibility to make sure that... Um, they're aware of what this could do. Um, I also think that it was help. I found that it was helpful to remind, to let people know that we had heard these stories from other people. There was still a sense among victims that I was the only one this happened to. I was the only one that felt this way. A classic comment from men was that you know they had the sexual experience in the priest when they were a teenager. They they thought they might be gay. This was in the 60s and 70s when there wasn't much of a support network. If you if you sort of were having some if you were having questions about your sexuality. And these guys harbored this for 20 years, thinking they were the only ones that felt this way, when most of the guys felt that way. And I think it was helpful for them to know that we were hearing the same kinds of stories over and over and over again, um, that, uh, that they weren't the only ones.
Thanks for listening. If you haven't seen Spotlight yet, it's definitely worth a trip to the theater. We mentioned a fellowship opportunity at the top of this episode. The Boston Globe is working with Participant Media and Opud Road Films, the Hollywood companies behind the movie, to sponsor a $100,000 fellowship competition. The Spotlight Investigative Journalism Fellowship will go to an individual or a team of journalists to help them pursue an in-depth investigative story with the opportunity to publish it in the Boston Globe. And First Look Media will provide additional support for the fellowship. If you're interested, check out the episode notes. We'll have links to all the details. On our next episode, we'll hear from ProPublica reporter A.C. Thompson. He'll be walking us through his powerful investigation called Terror in Little Saigon, which looks at the slayings of several Vietnamese American journalists in the U.S. between 1981 and 1990. And then we turned off the camera, and he said to us, and so, you know, there was this time I was sitting in a meeting of front members, and they were all planning to assassinate this um, newspaper publisher here in Orange County. And I said, no, I don't think we should do that. I, I, I don't think we should kill him. Like, let's not kill him. And so we didn't kill him. And it's crazy, man, you know? Uh, wow. And, and we were just, Rick and I were just, um, we were just stunned because <laughs> here was this sort of mea culpa um, speaking to everything that we had been investigating, these attacks on journalists. Sarah Hutchins edits the podcast and dug up the audio for this episode. You can find our episode notes along with all of our past shows at ire.org slash podcast. Even better, you can keep up to date with our episodes by subscribing to this podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. That's it for this week. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Adam Ayton. Radio. Podcast. Podcast. You might want to do that over there. Okay. Podcast.